Alrighty. Um, questions, thoughts um, from this morning. Matt's getting a microphone. And Simeon has a microphone. If you're telling me the Olivet Discourse, you, either I did a terrible job this morning, or um, if you can hear the Olivet Discourse, man, yeah, got it, cool, check, then you are a better man than I am, Gungadin. Anything. Okay. Would you put this in perspective for me about um, this place in time and Revelations and where it fits in with all of this? Because I know in Revelations it also talks about these are just the beginning of the mm. birth pangs mm. and such. Can, so I'm going to harmonize all the discourse with the book yeah, of Revelation. <laughs> Give me five minutes. I think we can do it. No, I'll see we can. no, no, no. Fair enough. I think we can even do it somewhat from Luke. If you go, if you go to Luke, because I'm most immediately well versed on Luke chapter 21. If you turn there, Jesus gives us some of the categories um, of of the time periods, the epochs that we're moving through. And interestingly, in verse uh, 24, well, actually, before we get to that, so after we get through what we looked at today. Jesus then, in verses 12 through 19, what we'll look at next week, prepares his disciples for what immediately faces them. The, the immense persecution that the early church faced, and, and does indeed characterize and continue on, but before all this. So this is not speaking to them about the, when he comes and the signs of the company when he comes. This is before all that, you're going to suffer. And, he, and he, that's what we'll look at next week. That's 12 through 19. But then he jumps ahead to even, because even though I think some of the events, in, it's hard not to see a partial fulfillment in 70 AD. In 70 AD, Israel ceased to be a nation. In 70 AD, the people were scattered. And until the 1940s, there was no Israel. There was no nation there. And what Jesus talks about, so in verses 20 through 24, Jesus gives this really interesting title um, in verse 24, the times of the Gentiles, which appears to be the age we're living in now. It's the age where human history is not revolving around Israel. And that's, Israel is not the center of God's work. You know, the church is multinational. It has no geographic, geopolitical center. And so what we might refer to as the church age. I mean, these are just titles, but the, the time of the Gentiles is, is, is as good as anything that that's the time we live in, and Jerusalem will be trodden underfoot. And right now, Jerusalem is trodden underfoot, and there's, there's wars and conflict, and there's a, there's a mosque on the Temple Mount. There's no temple there. And that's going to take go on and go on and go on. And then um, there will be, even though Jerusalem was sacked and destroyed once in 780, it'll happen again, and all the nations of the world gather around Jerusalem. And that's when the events of Zechariah will unfold. And that's when the Lord will return. In that moment, he will return and fight the nations with the sword of his mouth. Um, that's when he'll touch down on Mount of Olives, according to Zechariah 14. He'll come with an army clothed in white robes um, with the saints. That's, I believe, the, the time, the lineup of this. In other words, Luke's, all the discourse actually primarily focuses on the interim. 
he does give some of those final notes of when things are about to take place. So in verses 25 through 28, here's what we get from what sign will immediately be a harbinger of his immediate and imminent return. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars, which I think is what Joel 2 references. If you remember, we read Joel 2, 30 to 31. I'll show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord. The Revelation references that. So there will be um, signs in heaven. There'll be signs of the sun, moon, and stars and on earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding for what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and glory. Now, if you want to jump to Revelation, I think Revelation absolutely deals with that. I just got to find it. Um, I want to say it's 13, but I could be wrong. Um, it's when they see the sign. Okay, let's just search sign, son of man. That should be easy enough. My little Bible program here. Um, sign, son. And there's zero results. Because uh, I didn't spell sign correctly. Okay, great. No, I did spell it correctly. Okay, hold on. Okay. Nope. Revelation. Okay, hold on. Is it twelve one? Hold on. Um, hold on. Let's try that. That's not a word either. Okay. What did you say? Twenty one. The twenty one, I think, is the new heavens, the new earth. Um, here and that could do it. Okay. That's nope. Eight. Eight with the trumpets. Um now where's the where's the I'll hold on. I'll find this. This is now just getting me frustrated. So okay, chapter six. Chapter six, here it is. Okay. That's where we get the. Uh, that's where we get the celestial signs. Um, chapter six, verse twelve. Then he opened the sixth seal. I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell on the earth, as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit. I mean, he's referencing Luke, and the, the, the fig tree. Yeah, I mean this. There's the tie-in, right? The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up. Every mountain and island was removed from its place. So there's, there's, a, there's a sinking, right? When Jesus says these events, because if you keep your thumb there and go back to Luke, he says, when those things happen, when you see these things take place, verse 28, straighten up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. So these are the signs that immediately and imminently mark the Lord's return. But up until that, you're not going to know. You're not going to know up until that when he's coming. 
so that those signs are really the markers and the harbingers that he is about to come and, and do battle with the earth. If you're getting into the issue of, of the rapture, that's not in view in Luke. He's not dealing with that here. I mean, we could talk about that, but he's just not even dealing with that. That's not on his radar. Because he's talking still to the Jewish people about what's going to happen to them. And so Jerusalem's going to get sacked. Jerusalem's going to be trodden underfoot until the, the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. And I'd say that the end of the time of the Gentiles would be when the Gentile church, largely Gentile church, gets taken up to the, the Lord. And then these things happen and Jerusalem's surrounded. I mean, that's, I believe, how Luke's looking through it. So that's probably the other missing piece you might be looking for. But, but yeah, the section in Luke, verses 25 to 28, sync up perfectly with Revelation 6. And then just pick it up and keep going through Revelation 6. Because um, look at verse 15 in Revelation. The kings of the earth and the great ones, the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slaves and free, hid. I love this. You know, you meet people who claim to be atheists and they say, oh, I just wish I could have a cup of tea, a cup of coffee with God, chat with them. When God peeks his head around the, the edge of the screen and says, hi, boo, I'm here. They do not say, oh, finally, now we know. What do they do? The kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slaves and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling on the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? And that, I think, is what Luke is talking about when he says, there'll be great signs in the sun and moon and stars, on the earth distress among the nations, perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken, they will see the Son of Man. I mean, that, the end of Revelation 6, I think, syncs up with that perfectly. And then Jesus says, those are the events that mean it's just around the corner. Um, so that's, that's my best answer to that. Is that... Microphone. So when we see events... It needs to be on. That's on? Can you hear me? No. Hello, hello. Okay. So when we see events on the earth now... Yeah. Earthquakes and famines... That's just one little mark of the beginning. And then we see this, because I think, and maybe now isn't the time to go into it, Jeremy, but I was just thinking, I know these things will become greater mm. mid-tribulation. Is yeah. that when these will take place also in greater? Well, I think that in the course of Luke, Jesus is laying out, this is kind of the last point we'll pick up next week. Luke's laying out, these are the events that are typifying the age we're in. Wars, tumults of wars, um, pestilence, famine, disease, earthquakes. I mean, whether or not they pick up, I mean, they, they may well pick up. But just look over the last few thousand years. It's been peppered and dotted with precisely those things. Um, there's a famine marking out the early church. Uh, I mean, like I said, my kids are listening to this classical conversations history thing. And they were going through the potato famine. I think one million, I want to say, people died as a result of that. That sounds like a big number, but I remember the number they gave being big. I was like, whoa, I had no idea. I think it's a million. A million people starved to death because of the potato famine. I mean, so history is lit. In fact, I, sorry, I just read another book 
that argued that for the first time in human history, the three great evils of starvation, disease, and war have been tamed, meaning that they, those were viewed as inevitable things. I mean, if you were living in Paris in the 1500s, at any point, moment, there could be a plague that swept through and wiped out a third of the population. You just lived like that. And so for the first time in human history, not that we don't have mass diseases, but we have way more people dying from too much food than too little. I mean, people, there's malnutrition, but there's very few people who are actually starving to death on the planet. And there's way more people dying from overeating. Uh, that's the number one killer in our country. Um, so it's not to say we got everything solved, but for the first time in human history, when, if someone starves to death, the, we don't throw our hands up in the air and say, such is a lot of man. We say, who messed up? Same thing with disease, right? I mean, we, we hear about the bird flu and stuff, but we largely get these things wrapped up. And so diseases that wipe out a third of Europe just don't happen. And if they do start to happen, again, we want to say, who messed up? So when the Ebola started to get out of hand, and Ebola is one of the more recent ones, it only took out a couple, I think, hundred people. I could, no, thousand more? Okay. But there was a big inquiry. What, who did stuff wrong? We, the response rates were too slow. But the whole, the whole, our response to that whole thing indicates we now view it as something that ought to be under control. That's an incredibly new thought for most people who've lived on the earth. And, and the same with war. You know, when people make trade agreements, they don't wonder, well, what happens if Germany invades Poland again? The whole economic marketplace takes for granted, I mean, not that there aren't conflicts and stuff, but not like there were where you could live and, you know, the neighbor just might decide to invade you. That type of stuff doesn't happen as much anymore. So in one sense, those forces have been restrained. And yet in the other sense, we see the conflicts in the world. We see those things taking place. So I don't know why I went on that tangent other than it's just a fascinating book that I just read. Um, so I'll stay tuned and come next week. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Stay tuned. Exactly. Okay. Other thoughts, questions, opinions? We got one here, Marianne. Okay, so we have a family member um, that Al talks to a lot that is one of those people that's really wrapped up into the whole blood moons. Or, oh, dear. Um, he okay. knows for sure he talked to an angel, and then there's a likeness of an angel in a rock he found. And, and um, two sons, one son... Um, was having a conversation with Al and myself saying he's concerned about his brother because he told his dad he needs Jesus. He doesn't need to know about angels or the blood moons or right. some of that stuff. And, and Al and his conversations as well with this person has, you know, been um, trying to get him back to read the word right. and uh, follow Jesus, but he goes off on these things. Any suggestions when you're, because a lot of people like to, I mean, I can even remember back in the 80s when I was really, really tiny, but very smart because I understood all of this. Um, <laughs> you would have evangelists come to the church, um, you know, being in high school or whatever. You're yeah. like scared now because all of a sudden it, we're in the end times. Right. Well, obviously we're past the 80s and it hasn't happened yet. Right. So. Right. I, I, that's a great question. I, I think there's a perennial 
there's always two ditches on either side of the road. There's always two ways to fall off a table. And the two dangers the church can come into is one, ignoring this. I mean, the book of Revelation is the only book I know in the Bible that has a blessing on those who read it and understand it. So God intends us to read, meditate on, and he intends us to learn something. So the one danger is, well, people just fight over that. People conflict, so who are, we won't even deal with that. That's clearly wrong. The other danger, though, and as Pastor Daniel so well said this morning in, in preparation for communion, the New Testament's insistent that the purpose of telling us this stuff is not fundamentally to get your rapture chart lined up, but it's to live a holy life with hope. Um, so that John says, all who have this hope within... I mean, go to, go to 1 John uh, 2. Um, eschatology is meant to drive sanctification and, and give hope. So in 1 John 2... Um, there we go. Verse 28, now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence. This is, Daniel read this earlier. Not to shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. See how those links those things together. Um, that we are meant to be taught about Christ's return so that we'll live lives that we don't shrink back when he comes that we might be unashamed. That's, that's, that's the point. Because we know he's coming back, live that way, right? Um, and that's the point of Jesus' parables with the managers and the stewards who, if, if the householder knew the hour the master came, he wouldn't have been asleep, right? So this is meant to, to, so that when I'm tempted to just, you know, not be faithful tomorrow, the Lord might return, who knows? So it's meant to drive sanctification. The other danger, though, is getting so obsessed with this and going beyond what is written. If you go to Second John, you get another warning. Just go a page or two over. Um, verse 9. So you don't need to say what chapter, because there's only one chapter in Second John. So you say Second John 9. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide or remain or continue... The teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. So there's this danger of going on, trying to get beyond, and this is, I think, partly why this, this works so much and why a lot of times these, these we've got an old book here. The newest part of our old book is 2,000 years old. The older parts of our old book are better than 4,000 years old. And the thought that there's new secret insights, especially when you combine that with people who think they're getting new revelation from angels or whatever, is appealing. It's really appealing that you could be in the know, that you could be picking up this. You're, you're part of the select few who figured it. There's always that danger. Various forms of that approach have been around since, well, since the writing of the New Testament. The, the earliest term for it was Gnosticism, the Greek um, word gnosis, means knowledge and there were sects in the early church that said that you know basically there's basic believers who have the bible and basic salvation but if you get this secret information or you could replace it if you just get my chart um or whatever now with this extra information or what this angel told this person now you can really understand it and you're in the know and that's always appealing the the, the appeal of being on the inside the appeal of of having that leg up is always appealing to people, and it's dangerous. So 
if you're reading and rereading scripture and what God says, even as it relates to the end times, more power to you. That's going to bless you. God gives a blessing to the reading of his word and to those who understand it. You can tell if you're reading and studying eschatology correctly if the result is more hope, more faithfulness, more holiness. If the result is more fighting online or with other people of differing views, if that's the primary fruit it's bearing, you're doing something wrong, you know, right? That's, so the danger on the one hand is ignore it. People quarrel over this stuff. This is unimportant and you neglect it. The other danger is to so obsess over it, and especially if you start trying to find secret new insight with extra information, that's dangerous. Um, and I think the sweet spot in the middle is, and I think we'll see even as you come through this in, in Luke, is, yeah, we're supposed to, he, he wants the people living in the generation when he comes to notice it. There are signs. I think they'll be unmistakable. I mean, it's according to Revelation, what we read in Revelation 6, everybody on earth knows something's up. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, And we're going to, you know, the people who are alive and on earth, whoever that generation, whoever that people is, they're going to know, ah, this is it. Okay. But other than that, we live like he might come tomorrow, and yet we are prepared to endure. Um, so the Apostle Paul can speak in Thessalonians, we who are left will be caught up with the Lord in the air. The Apostle Paul thought it possible he might live to see the return of the Lord. That's remarkable. We, not you, we. Here we are 2,000 years later. And so I think the Lord wants his church to be anticipating. The, the other danger there is I don't want to be like those stupid people who think he's actually coming back who've been wrong all this time. He wants us to live expectantly. I mean, go back to... Back to Luke. Go back to Luke. Um, my text I used yesterday for Brian's funeral, uh, Luke 12. And this is no new teaching on Jesus' part. Um, verse 35. Stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them if he comes in the second watch or in the third watch or in the 2,000th watch. Sorry, I added that in. And he finds them awake Blessed are those servants, but know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready. The Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So the study of these topics is meant to create in us readiness, but a readiness that leads to living readily. You know, I remember once, I forget who said it to me, but... You, know, you don't ever want to be doing something you're going to be caught ashamed if the Lord appeared in that moment. <laughs> you know? And you, you think that way. You know, um, would I want the Lord to return while I'm watching this movie? While I'm clicking on this site? While I'm, whatever. You know, that's how we're living because he might appear at any moment. And he goes on to tell us the dangers. If we're not alert, we will be tempted to get distracted. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us all? The Lord said, then who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whose master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say, he will set him over all his possessions. But, here's the other danger, if that servant says to himself, 
My master's delaying and coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and he will cut him in pieces, literally vivisect him and put him with the unfaithful. That servant who knew his master, and then he goes forward. But, so that's, that's really the purpose of this teaching is that we won't get distracted, that you won't start caring more about you know, the, the, the newest season of your favorite television program or you know, the newest Marvel movie coming out than you are about the, the Great Commission and about the task at hand because we think we have tons of time. You know, my master's got tons of time. So I get to do both. I'll pursue my worldly pursuits and I'll do what God wants me to do because I've got tons of time. Well, not necessarily, right? Lee, you want to get a microphone for Lee? Well, now I'm puzzled in the sense that they're saying, here's signs of what's going to happen and earthquakes and the oceans and all this stuff. And then on the other hand, it can come at any moment. So what's the balance there? No, the balance there is um, one of the mysteries, the whole age of the church is a mystery Paul speaks of that as God reveals truth over time, new information, more clarity comes in. And so Jesus even hints at it here when he speaks about the time of the Gentiles. You know, if you're a Jew, what do you mean the time of the Gentiles? I mean, if you go and read Zechariah, the first coming and the second coming are reverse apart. Jesus comes, behold, your king is coming, riding humbly on a donkey. In the next verse, he's turning swords to plowshares. We know at least 2,000 years separate Zechariah 9, 9, and 9, 10, and 9, 11, or whichever, I think it's 11 and 12 or 10 and 11. Those two verses. We know 2,000 years separates that, but if you think of like mountain ranges that line up, um, this gap where Israel's disbanded and the church is Gentile is, is kind of hidden. So the imminency, because you're right, there are some things, as we understand, if you read our doctrinal statement, we believe that the, the end of the age of the Gentiles is kicked off with the gathering, the rapture of the church. That can happen at any moment and is imminent. You could face the Lord in that moment, right? Then, before he returns to do battle with the armies, there will be some very noticeable things. So Jesus cannot return to fight the nations of the world till Jerusalem is surrounded by enemies. So that is not imminent. That cannot happen this moment. There have to be things that happen first, but the end of the age of the Gentiles could happen at any moment. And when that happens, you'll be face-to-face with the Lord. Does that make sense? In fact, that's one of, the, I think, the stronger arguments for pre-tribulationalism is it re- retains imminency. Um, whereas if you go to mid-trib or pre-wrath or whatever, now it's hard to argue how Jesus' statements about any moment, like a thief in the night, can be, can be held on to. Well, no, there, there has to be a peace treaty made, and there has to be antichrist. No, we, we're like, no, the next event in God's prophetic calendar could happen at any moment with nothing in its way. That's, that's what we believe, what is our reading of the text is, and, it, and it's consistent with Jesus' emphasis on imminence. Um, no, good question, good question. Other questions, be they good or bad? Wow, you guys, this is, we're talking about eschatology and the, all of it discourse, and there's like scratching heads. For those of you driving in your cars. Oh, we got another one. You keep them coming. I just want to say that 
I felt very similar to others, I'm sure, out there who don't study Revelation sometimes because it is hard to understand. Oh, yeah. But having begun a course in that recently, I mm. just love it because it reveals to me just how complete God's plan is, how there are segments to it, mm -hmm. um, just it's so wonderful, and I just would encourage everybody, don't stay away from it because there's discussions about it, and you can't know it like certain things, but it's just absolutely encouraging to me, and I can see why the Lord says, blessed is the one who reads it. That's it. Oh, Kingery in the back. The king. I just wanted to say I uh, I think that prophecy is uh, is so fascinating in the Bible. I don't know why I can uh, have any doubts about the Bible when when you have prophecies like Tyre and Jerusalem and Sidon and all that all those fulfilled prophecies oh, over yeah. and over again. No other religion can even come close to that. Not even um, PBS. Uh, prophet Nostradamus <laughs> has yeah. anything even close to that. Now, that, that, is, that is one of the things that God says in Isaiah. It marks him away from all the other false gods. In fact, yeah, go, go to Isaiah. Um, that's another function of prophecy is to you know, demonstrate this is God talking. Um, in Isaiah... Doo -doo 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 -doo. We'll come back to that. That's remarkable. Um... Okay, yeah, Isaiah 46. Well, actually, I'll, I'll just go back to 45. We'll start in 45. If there's ever a Babe Ruth moment in the Bible, because, I mean, there's varying degrees of specificity to prophecy. And some of them would be easier to fake. For instance, I've heard unbelievers say, oh, it's not very impressive that Jesus rode in Jerusalem on a donkey because he knew that's what it was said. So it's, he said, I'm getting the donkey to fulfill what's written. So that's not difficult. It's a little harder to pick where you're born. But fair enough. But there are, there are prophecies that are really just so specific and not vague. You know, you get to other, you know, and this is the type of modern prophecy. There'll be a man, he'll lose a hammer, and it will be, you know. Then you get to Isaiah 45. Um, well, actually, go to, actually further back to 44. And you remember when Babe Ruth, um, you know, pointed the bleachers where he's going to hit the ball? This is one of those moments in, in prophecy. It is absolutely remarkable in its specificity. Um, 40, 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. Isaiah 44, 24. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by himself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messenger, now, this is before the captivity. So understand, Isaiah is predicting the, the destruction of Jerusalem, the captivity, and now the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. While Isaiah is living, there's nothing wrong. The, the timetable is Isaiah dies, and then the three prophets who coexist during the time of, of, of Nebuchadnezzar's campaign and destruction of Jerusalem are Daniel, Ezekiel, and um, Jeremiah. But they're all after Isaiah. 
So Isaiah's predicting this. While, every, while Nebuchadnezzar is not on the scene, he, Jerusalem's not destroyed. So understand the, 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 the prophecies already he's assuming. He's talking about the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Anyone living in his day, what are you talking about the rebuilding? says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. The cities of Judah, they shall be built. And I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry. I will drive up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. And he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. He just named, not the Babylonian, but the Medo-Persians who took over the Babylonians, their king who gives the edict to return and rebuild the temple. And he named them. Not there will be a great king, Cyrus. And that's the Babe Ruth moment. That's just the bing. And in the next chapter, God makes a point of highlighting it's this particular ability that separates him out from the other gods. Look at um, verse 46. Starting in verse 5. I mean, this is one of those great rhetorical, who will you compare me to? Seriously. 46.5. So I am not a big fan of those t-shirts. You know, I like God. He's the real thing. Like, they have like a Coke logo. God's the real. Like, he's not like Coke. No, he's not. Um, and <laughs> to whom will you liken me? This is why you couldn't draw pictures of him or make idols, because it's an insult. God's kind of like this strong bull. No, he's not. To whom you liken me and make me equal, and compare me that we may be alike. Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith, hire a goldsmith. And he makes it into a god. They fall down and worship. They lift it up to their shoulders and carry it. This god they worship, they've got to carry around because he's so powerful and he can't even move himself. They set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from trouble. Now here's the comparison. Here's this dead, mute, lifeless, impotent idol. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. Like you just named Cyrus a chapter or so earlier. Calling a bird of prey from the east and a man of my counsel from a far country. I think verse 11 probably does even reference Cyrus. I've spoken. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed. I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring my righteousness, I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. My salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. That's a long way around to say, yes, Dave, God points to his ability to predict the future as one of the primary things that sets him apart from all other would-be gods. If you go to Deuteronomy 18, the test of a prophet is whether what he says comes true. There are other tests. God even anticipates the possibility that a prophet does say something that comes true, but he says, go serve other gods, and God says, okay, I was testing you with them. You need to stone him to death. So it's not the only test, but a necessary test of a prophet is that his prophecies come true. And that's one of the things God says sets him apart from all other would-be gods is his ability to, to predict the future. And so, 
yeah, another, another thing Jesus is doing in giving this prediction is he's functioning as a prophet. And as these things are carried out, we, we, it confirms his word and it confirms his authority. Remember, this whole challenging section began by challenging Jesus' authority. Well, he's speaking with some authority now. Anything more you want to say to that, Dave? Or is that, is that, where, where you, is that good? Did I... Get the mic, so if you want to go further, that, go further. Um, yeah, I, I, I just find it fascinating uh, how, how detailed the prophecies are, and even more fascinating are scholars that, that scramble. I mean, they just don't wave off the accuracy of those prophecies. They scramble to deny history. I mean, we're talking right. about history, history. They scramble to deny that, erase it. Daniel is, you know, you, you know all about the, the Daniel prophecy that they're trying to... Well, you know. or they assume. Here's the other thing. You'll read some commentators. Clearly, this was written much later because, you know, it all happened. <laughs> That's the other way. Is they say, this is so accurate, it had to have been written after the fact. And then, thankfully, some of the, you know, some of the archaeology and, and the older scrolls demonstrate, nope. Um, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls got a copy of, I believe, Isaiah in it, which is pretty significant. Um, and some of our earliest copies of the New Testament manuscripts, I mean, like I said, there's, there's a fragment of John from 125 AD, and there's a gospel, a portion of a gospel of Mark right now that it might be first century. So... It's, it's the, the notion of saying, okay, this stuff is all written after the fact in the fourth century in Egypt doesn't fly anymore. Um, so we've got the textual basis to back up. That, no, the, this is not drawing the bullseye after you shoot. No, not drawing the bullseye after you've fired. This is actually the real deal. Um, okay, other thoughts, questions, a haiku? We got ten minutes, folks. Any other questions on the broader topic of Luke's gospel in general? Doesn't have to be eschatology in the Olivet discourse. Any questions at all? That's got to be it. Oh, Kyle Stark. This may show my ignorance, but uh, Revelation 6 that you mentioned earlier, yeah. the, the seals, is it possible that those seals are in progress now? You know, like the wages and the uh, famine, sword, uh, pestilence. Is it possible that those are unfolding during the church age throughout time, or is it, is it going to be one more dramatic event? Or? Well, there certainly is a large group of Christians who would think so. And, and so maybe what we can do for the last 10 minutes here is just talk about some of the major groups of eschatology. So the big categories are um, pre-millennialism, which this church would fall under. And by that, Revelation... Um, 20? Is that what the millennium is, or is it 21? Um, 
yeah, Revelation 20 speaks of a thousand year period. So that's the, revel, that's the millennium that all the positions name themselves by. So you've got amillennial, premillennial, postmillennial. And so all the major positions define themselves by what they do with understand Revelation 20 to speak of. So in premillennialism, we mean we are living in a time period before Revelation 20. Amillennialism says we're living in a time period where the events of Revelation are unfolding. In some sense, we're in the millennium now, in a sense. All these events are unplaying themselves. And post-millennialism actually believes we bring in the millennium and then Christ returns. So where where does all that fit together? So uh, I believe almost all the reformers in the Catholic Church are amillennial. And most Presbyterian churches today, good guys. I mean, the T4G conference I just went to, a lot of those guys, most of those guys are amill. So good Christians differ on this. Um, but our understanding of the events here would say that, no, this can't be unfolding. So if you look at, look at the book of Revelation, um, there simply are claims to events and things that can't be happening. So the way Revelation, the book of Revelation goes, I'm going to try doing my three minutes to the book of Revelation. We'll see how that goes. Uh, you've got Jesus appearing to uh, go to Revelation chapter 1. Um, and there in verse 3 is that blessing. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. And then Jesus wants John to write and he tells him, where is it, the things that you've seen. Okay, yeah, verse 19. Write, therefore, the things that you've seen, those that are, those that are to take place. And then chapters 2 and 3 are seven letters to seven real churches living in his time period. But starting in 4, we, we go up to heaven, and there's a praise service, praising the Lamb. And it culminates in chapter 5 with the Lamb who is slain taking the scroll, which is the scroll that's going to be opened, the title deed to the earth, and based on the Lamb's claim to the scroll and to receive it, all that's about to happen unfolds. But the very first thing that kicks this off are the, in chapter 6, so that's just moving through Revelation, chapter 6 then is this scroll. So let me show you the scroll I'm talking about in 5. So in 5, um, just five one. Then I saw at the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll within and on back sealed with seven seals. So in the Roman world, you could have a scroll and you could seal it at various points. And so you could have something written to one commander in your army and then you could write and then you could put a, put, pour some wax, put your seal and close it and it sealed the next piece and you could write to another person and so you could open it sequentially. Um, and so that's what the scroll has, seven seals. And so each seal, as you'd open it, would open in a little more of the scroll. Um, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and look at it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. One of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And then we get this song of praise because the Lamb is worthy to take the scroll and to open it. Um, And then chapter 6 begins with exactly that Jesus has taken the scroll and he begins to open it. And 
one of the nearly first things we get at the sixth seal is, verse 12, the signs in the heavens. Certainly, I think that hasn't happened. Those get repeated numerous times. The earth, okay, the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. Stars of the sky fell on the earth. The fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slaves and free, hid themselves in caves among the rocks of the mountains, calling on the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. And from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Unless you want to be really generous with your interpretation of that section, there's no way anything like that has happened. And so that's why when you get into discussions of eschatology, what you really need to discuss is hermeneutics and interpretive principles. Because there's a large portion of the church who absolutely think that or something like that has or is happening. But you have to spiritualize it. Um, and then there's another group that think almost all of this happened in 70 AD. And that's called preterism, right? Um, and so those are the major camps. So we don't think that's happened because we think something very literally like that will happen. And if, if anything remotely like what's been described there is to take place, it surely has not taken place yet. And that's just chapter 6. So we haven't gotten very far into the program, wherever we're at with that. So we, we're looking for these events to be future. We're futurists in that sense. And we believe Christ will come back to earth and he will set up a kingdom and he will reign and he will rule. Psalm 2 will be literally fulfilled. Where, I mean, think about it. The Messiah, God incarnate, will have a street address on David's throne in Jerusalem. And that that will actually happen. So we are premillennial, and we are dispensational premillennial because we don't think the church and, the, and Israel are switchable terms, that they're the same, they're equivalent terms. There's a lot of overlap. There's one people of God, but it does appear that God's not done with Israel. You read through Romans 9, 10, 11, and it talks about grafting back in the natural olive branches, and so that's, that's where we would come down, our understanding of things, what I would argue, and so those are the different categories. We are premillennial, and there's two types of premillennial. There's historic premillennial, which sees very little distinction between the church and Israel, but in every other way would agree with this millennium. And then we're dispensational premillennial. And so when you hear those terms mount up, that's just some sort of category. So millennial sees these things as unfolding spiritually now over the last 2,000 years that are happening. There will be no earthly reign of Christ. In that view, Christ returns, burns up the heavens and the earth, makes a new creation, and we go. Postmillennial, which is the strangest one. I don't comprehend postmillennialism, but it's actually gaining some traction. Postmillennial is that the church will go out, the gospel will spread, more and more and more of the world will become Christian until every nation on earth is a Christian theocracy. And then and only then will Jesus return. Well, it got, and it surely got a lot closer to happening in like the Middle Ages when most of the known world was at least confessingly Christian. Now, I don't, I don't understand. We've had more, I mean, more deaths. This has been the bloodiest human century in human history with World War I, World War II. Think things, anyway. 
as post-millennialism, but there, there are folks who will be happy to explain that. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to straw man anybody, but that's the one I have the hardest time wrapping my head around. I, don't, I just don't get. But those are the major views or approaches of reading um, eschatology and the study of last things. So, with that, we'll call it a day. Thank you very much, and we'll see you all next week.